Welcome to Ramble City. Hi, this is Shane Nicholson. You're listening to Ramble City with Brad McCaw. And I'm about to go to an Airbnb to write a song. <laughs> I'm not. I'm in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Government. Arrested. Yeah, that's right. That's all jokes. All right. How do you make a new record during what my next guest calls his grumpy old man stage? Recorded during the 2020-21 COVID epidemic and its series of lockdowns, he discovered a surprise romanticism and joy inspired by a cynicism he felt looking at the things he'd become or we'd become as people, as a community and as a music business. Hello, Bradley McCaw here. Welcome to another instalment of Ramble City. Today's guest is Shane Nicholson, the Australian singer-songwriter from Brisbane. Yes, the one and only Briz Vegas. He's released 11 albums, he's won three ARIA awards, 11 golden guitars, and has twice been named Producer of the Year at the Country Music Awards of Australia. He's collaborated on incredible music with Casey Chambers, which we talk about in the chat, and Paul Kelly, which we talk about in the chat. And uh, this happened all just before the launch of his 2021 album, Living in Colour. Our chat makes all the stops. We chat about some of his favourites on the new record, how he found Harvest on vinyl, and it inspired, you know, a, a large part of his story and and a cracker song. He crossed paths with Paul Kelly in random places around the world, which is a really fun chat, and how he rents Airbnbs for the night to find time to write songs. Yes, true story. Don't forget to follow me everywhere you get your social media pipeline at Bradley McCaw Official. You can hear my new record on Spotify and iTunes by searching Bradley McCaw. It features Hall of Fame musician Louis Shelton and bass legend Nathan East. And of course, if you're really enjoying the show, the best thing you can do for us, if you're going to do us a favour, go on, do us a favour, is to share this with a friend. If If you think they might like what we're doing, then it would really help us find a broader audience. But let's get to it. Let's start with what Shane Nicholson calls one of the joys of being in the grumpy old man phase, which is the joy of chatting on the phone with no video, just audio only, which I absolutely loved. And soon enough, we get to the making of this brilliant record and we dig really deep into that. But we start by how it felt being on his own in lockdown. And I wondered if it was similar to how it was making records in the early days when he was first starting out in this business on his own. I'm Bradley McCaw and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. It's amazing that audio only, you know, I'm not a radio guy. This is this must be what radio feels like, right? This is this is radio. This is on the phone. I'm so sport by Zoom now. It's like, <laughs> I know. It's like I'm just, you know, you see it's like it's um <coughs> I, I'm picking my nose right now and you don't know. Exactly. I know, totally. Yeah. Well, I, I've been doing all of my media in pajamas for the last three weeks. <laughs> How good is that? That's the only it's way amazing. to do it. It's you know, yeah. just straight out of bed, hat on. Yeah, that's it. Well, the early um, morning ones I don't even get out of bed for. I just kind of do them on the phone and then hang up and go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, making, so making this record right with lockdowns and COVID and, and a lot of the time that you spent, you know, it sounds like just you, you know, um, 
must have, it sounds very different to the other albums that you've made, you know, your solo records, the records with Casey Chambers, the albums you've produced, but it does sound like that this record has kind of taken you a bit back to your roots, kind of the early days in Brisbane when it was just you on, on your own just making music. Is that, is that a fair way to kind of kick this off? Absolutely. That's exactly what it felt like. It was like being a teenager again in my parents' house in my bedroom at night with my first computer recording setup. And, right. you know, learning how to put songs together. And uh, it felt a lot like that, but 25 years later, you know, and um, I loved it, uh, even though I didn't really get to indulge in it in any huge way. I, I made it very slowly over the course of 18 months and just did very short bursts of work on it, an hour here, a couple of hours there, nothing for three weeks. And, you know, and I would just kind of do it whenever the feeling took me i was um quite busy actually make producing for other people which has been one healthy byproduct of this pandemic and all the lockdowns is that people are writing a lot of songs and need to purge themselves of those songs and i've been making a lot of records during this time so i was just doing mine in the in the downtime really when in, in between other projects so it took a while and I think that's what made it enjoyable, really. I was just jumping into it when I felt, you know, I felt inspired rather than... Um, yeah, when you got the call, kind of when it sort of was like... Yeah, exactly. You know, the little tap yeah. on the shoulders like, yeah, we're ready to yeah. give that lick now. You've got and it. most often times, you know, I'm, I'll devote a month of my life and live, eat, breathe and sleep that record until it's done. And this was yeah. nowhere near like that. So, yeah, it was a bit like <clears throat> going back to the early days of, and... I guess also because it was like a solitary process, um, even though these songs were written pre-COVID days, that it was recorded during various lockdowns here in New South Wales. So I um, had to do, my, well, all of it myself and the contributions I had from some friends of mine were all, you know, remotely done over the internet. So none of us could actually get in a room together to, to work at that stage. So it felt like a very solitary a process which it was did um, you find that it was kind of easier or or different in that there wasn't someone kind of there kind of giving you that instant feedback for kind of thing so say you know you've got your engineer there and you know say someone's co-producing it with you let's just say and you 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 know you've you found this lick you've you sort of laid it down as you go and there's kind of like this feeling in the room it's kind of like it's not there yet you're like yeah i know just give me a sec i'm, I'm it's almost there or it was just nice to be on your own and sub question did you ever sort of get sick of your demos because there's no one else to kind of go, this is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is it. Well, you know, you're like, I don't think this is it. So I know this is it. You're an idiot. Yeah. This is fantastic. You're right. Uh, yeah, I did. Well, I did get, it's easy to get sick of yourself. I get sick of myself all the time when I'm working, especially. Um, I found it a challenge to try and do it without having that level of objectivity that I would normally, you know, enjoy having if i was yeah. working in the room with someone else and the last few records i've always been heavily involved in producing my records but the last few records i've made i've handed over that role almost exclusively to matt fell who's a like my best mate in the world but also yeah. a really great producer and i've done that on purpose so that i removed myself from that part of the process and and i could just enjoy being an artist and making the record and and having an enjoyable experience rather than feeling like work it was work for me um, and obviously this one was nothing like that I didn't have that objectivity um, 
in the room in the moment. But, you know, you can still, it's not hard to flick an MP3 to someone over your, you know, in a text message. Yeah, that's right. Check something and call you back and say, yeah, I don't know what you're thinking. That's rubbish, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Sorry, Shane, I wasn't listening to yours. Sorry, I was just listening to my new song. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So there was a bit of that. And because it was protracted, it was stretched out over such a long period of time, there was plenty of chance for me to kind of, Step away and come back. Step away and come back and listen a week or a month later and, and have that objectivity myself. And and then, you know, it did, <coughs> excuse me, that did actually come into play. There was this mm. one song on the record that was completely re-recorded um, at the last minute. And, and I so I spent however long recording the song and then decided that the whole approach was wrong. So I deleted everything but the drum track and just recorded it all again in, in less again. than a night, like just in one night, you know. <laughs> so I just had this epiphany of um, some idea and like right at the 11th hour. And so, yeah, sometimes having that space and time can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. You can overcook mm. something, you know. You can, yeah. you can work on it. And I've done that before. I, I've got records I can't separate from the feeling I had when I ended it, which was that I've overcooked this record, I've worked too hard on it, you know, and you've, um, you, it's lost its spontaneity. And um, I'm consciously aware of not doing that again. So it was a balance of a lot of things, I think, you know, working on this myself. But ultimately, I just had fun. I just had a lot of fun. And I couldn't be on tour, obviously. None of us could. It was, yeah. um, it was just a bit of an outlet. And I just really I- enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds great. I'm really enjoying it. I'm loving it. I know lots of people that I know are really loving it. And, you know, that's not just, you know, just smoke or whatever. But it's always, I always tend to think that there's like two kinds of songwriters, right? And I'm pretty sure I got this to Paul, from Paul Kelly. So I know we're going to probably talk about him later. But like as a writer, there's like two kinds of writers. There's the one that writes a lot of songs, you know, like sort of 150 songs in a year or yeah. whatever. And then just <laughs> yeah. keeps the 10 good ones, right? It's like there's only 10 out of the 150 that are good. And that's my batting average. And then that's why I think it was Paul Kelly because it was a cricket reference. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then there's like the writer that writes like 10 or 15 songs and they're crafted like a, like, like a watch from Italy. You know, every lyric is placed in the exact right place next to the exact cog. And they use probably 12 of those 15 songs, you know. Yeah. So which one are you? If you had to pick one in this, in this strange universe and I'm saying there are only two kinds of writers, which one would you say that you are right now well, in your I, career? Right now I'm the latter but I used right. to be the former and my, I, I wrote all the time, every single day. I used to religiously carry a notebook in my pocket, you know, wow. before phones with notebooks. I always had a paper moleskin in my pocket and I, I wrote every day. I would write in like sitting on a bus, on a plane, or, you know, uh, in a doctor's waiting room or anything. I would just constantly jotting down ideas all the time and then I would end up writing, like you say, could be 25 songs for a record and pick pick 10 or 12 um that would that that was pretty normal but it does does not happen anymore i don't i don't even finish the songs that i aren't that i don't think are going to be 
album worthy. Yeah. They just don't get finished. And I'm laughing because I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I've, I, I wrote whoever, what's, I don't know, is it 13 songs on this record? I wrote 13 songs. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. I recorded what I wrote and there was no leftovers. <laughs> Some people call it laziness. I call it time effectiveness. I think that's just effective. You know that you're not going to get this song around that roundabout and over the bridge into the next city, which is where it needs to go. It's like, it's never going to get there. It's run out of petrol and I'm just going to let it be here on the side of the road and I'm going to hitchhike to the next song. I yeah, really think-, I think I think back in the early days, I didn't know what constituted a great song until I'd finished them all and put them all together and then weighed up the pros and cons of each one and then right. sonically going to fit together. And I think over the years after going through the entire process of selecting songs and recording them and refining them and then what gets left over, I think I've learned over the years that I can I can kind of foresee where it's going with a song and there's not a lot of songs I abandon either. Like if I sit down and actually work on a song, it'll get finished and get recorded now. I I find that I've just got a better gauge of where it's going and if it's worth persevering with, you know. I still have, you know, lots of of ideas in my phone and that kind of thing and that I will dive back to when I'm writing. But there's no kind of songs that sit around half-finished. There's no... I don't really have a lot of leftover songs anymore. People assume that you do. I'm always asked, you know, any leftovers from the record? Pitch <laughs> to I'm, Australian Idol or something, you know? Uh, like, I'm at about seven or eight on the album. That. We need a couple of songs, Shane. What do you have? We will take whatever crumb you've got, <laughs> please. Yeah, got, I just don't. I don't have them anymore. But um, I don't know. That's just the way I work, I guess, now. Just a melody, um, Shane. Just a melody. Just two just chords <laughs> in a row. That's all we want. Just give us something to start us. We're lost. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had all that stuff lying around to, you know, to just fling out in all directions so other people could use them. But, I, yeah, I don't seem to much anymore. Um, mm. I just don't. There's there's some songs, though, that do, don't do always speak to you straight away. And, like, they don't – I might finish them and not be – I might not think it's the best song in the world that I've ever written, you know, like, but uh, they take some time to resurface. There's actually a song on this record that took about six months to resurface, so I wrote it. Um, and then about six months later, I'd forgotten about it. And then, uh, I heard it and thought, wow, there's something in that, that I hadn't noticed when it was written, you know, and it kind of called Which out song is me. that? Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. Is so High Price is Surviving. And, and the reason I think it happened this way is because it's the only song on the record that was co-written and it was written at a, a songwriting camp that I go to every year as a tutor. And I, I, um, work with new songwriters and we co-write and that was one of the songs that we wrote one morning you know after breakfast it was just this you know quick song in a couple of hours and and I think it got forgotten because it was just one of 30 odd songs got written that 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 week at that camp you know and Mm. I, I hadn't really thought of it until it I don't know how I stumbled on again but it was at least six months later and thought oh that's that's actually a lot cooler than I gave it credit for at the time so it was never intended for a record it was just an exercise you know at a, at a songwriting camp <laughs> so uh, they can they can jump up and bite you later when you don't expect it yeah it's interesting to, to hear you talk about it in a way that is being a songwriter that has kind of learned what what rabbit holes not to go down in a sense, so you don't even sort of begin those things. You know, it's like it's a, it's an artist that that knows who they are and and knows the records they make and and you know all those kind of ethereal things that you hear artists talk about. You know, it's like yep. 
the first record, I was, didn't really know what I was doing, but I was just had all these songs. And then, you know, for me as a piano player, it's like, well, that's kind of like my Billy Joel song. And that's kind of like my trying yeah. to be Elton John song, you know? And it's like, after a period of time, all of that sort of, yeah, comes into kind of just what you do. Is that, is that kind of part of it too? I mean, you, you're well beyond that, you know what I mean? But like kind of, it's an interesting thing, I think, for, for I guess, oh, those starting out to hear about, you know, it's an interesting Absolutely. point. I, I mean, those inspirations will inevitably form the fabric of, of who you are as an artist because they're the reason that you play music, you know. So I can't disassociate Neil Young and Neil Finn and Bob Dylan and Nick Cave from what I do because they're all the things that kind of shaped me when I was younger as a listener. And so you can't you can't separate them, but what does happen over time is they become distilled down into some it's like some alchemy that goes on and they become a new metal and that and that is your metal. That is your sound and, and those things inform your decisions still but they're funneled through the years of experience maybe that you've had. So I find that I still love exploring. So I still love experimenting with songs and messing around in the studio for those happy accidents. Um, so it's not a, a rigid kind of uh, process of creation. I still love exploring and turning around and doing u-turns and not not getting somewhere and starting again i still love that well i mean um, clearly you recreated you recreated one of the 13 tracks on the album in a night because you went exactly. oh my god uh, this is what i just hadn't realized <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know? so I st- i'm still open to happy accidents and artistic exploration you know um but i don't find that i think what it comes down to is that when i like i said i used to write every day i, I had this creative urge to be jotting stuff down all the time and writing and writing documenting everything and then everything changed because I had children (laughs) and we were on tour at the times when Casey and I were still married and we were touring uh, probably Rattling Bones I would say was when we were touring together a lot of the time the first record we made together and uh, we had young kids that had to come on the road with us so it meant that when if, if I wasn't on stage or doing sound check or interviews, you were being dad. You had something, some other role to fill as a parent on tour. Being a parent on tour is pretty full on, mm. um, as all those touring parents would know. Uh, so it took all the time away from me that I would normally write aeroplanes, cars, sitting backstage before the show, you know, um, all those endless hours in hotel rooms. They weren't endless hours anymore, they were all filled up hours. So my my songwriting life just changed dramatically, and then it became a, a it became more of a uh, situation where I had to create time to write. So about twenty uh, two thousand and eight, when Rat and Bones came out, I realised, okay, I need to like create a writing zone for myself now. So I would I started, and this has been my habit now for well over ten years. I I go away, I get on a plane, I'll fly to another city, I'll just get a hotel room somewhere random and just write songs. I'll walk around the city and people watch or sit in cafes and just I just need to be away from my life a little bit and um, isolated especially is a bonus, you know. I, uh, one of the last record, the one before this, I wrote on the Hawkesbury River and I found this house that you couldn't get to by road. You had to take a boat to get to and there was no mobile service and it was, just sounded perfect so I would, take a boat down the river and, and wrote songs and wrote most of the Love and Blood record in this isolated river house. 
And the one before that, I wrote it mostly out in the Red Centre in Hermansburg where I was completely isolated. And I find that I just need to create that um, time to write now. So it's not a matter of me walking around with a notebook all the time like I used to. I, mm. I actually just, I think I keep all these notes building up over time, you know, voice memos and that kind of thing. And then I create time to write and then just hope that the muse comes along. You know, it doesn't always, but... Uh, the songs I wrote for this record, I couldn't really travel away because I was working a lot, <clears throat> producing it in the studio at home. So in between sessions, I would just get an Airbnb and in, even in the same suburb that we lived in and just kind of, I'd only be three streets away from my house, but I, it meant that I could actually just get self-absorbed enough to go into my own thoughts and write a, and write a song. And so I would just get a, an Airbnb for a night, go away try and catch a song and if I caught a song great if not I didn't but um I just have to find ways to write now that um you know put myself in situations where the the muse might arrive I think mm, that's that is brilliant that's um geez I've been smiling at you hearing that Shane that's so good let's let's take a quick break and let's come back and talk more about then um the the fruits of this label with some of my favorite songs from the album and I'll try and coach well coax is probably the more word, not coach. I'll try and coax a couple of the, the favourites out of you. I'll try and coach you on a couple of what your favourites should be from your record. Excellent. Oh, I'm nailing this outro. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Okay, so let's let's start with the lead single from the album, a song uh, for the vinyl collectors in the world. It's almost like you know an A and R person said to you, um, an artist and repertoire for for anyone that's sort of wondering what that means, said to you, you know, we need to really hone in on this type of fan. Can you write a song for them? And that, this fan is me, Shane, because I'm a ferocious ferocious collector. When I was young, I used to go to record shops and just kind of, this is before I knew any of the albums. This is just how I would discover. You know, this is pre-Spotify and pre-iTunes and you mm-hmm. just kind of find these records and be like, oh, this looks interesting. What is this? Super Tramp. Oh, that sounds a bit adult. I'll buy that. So w- let's set the scene, I guess, for for what for this song so this is harvest on vinyl right so the opening lyrics are i found harvest on vinyl when i was 13 in the cupboard by our stereo without a cardboard sleeve so shane nicholson what do these lyrics mean for you what does this mean well that takes me back to my that that was my stepping foot into the world of being a songwriter and an artist i did find it i was actually i was 12 but 13 Sound better. Syllables. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually twelve, <clears throat> so I had to have, use some artistic license with that. But seven just I, seems unbelievable. So I picked thirteen exactly. just because <laughs> it just rolled better off the tongue. <laughs> I um, I did find it. It never had a cardboard sleeve, which is why it's scratched. And I go on to talk about that in the song as well. It's got specific scratches that I remember from. It. I just knew it so well. You know that record. Yeah, I know that's such a brilliant little. It's almost a thing you'd create, you know what I mean, to sort of land that lyric. But it's a real thing. It's so cool that that without a cardboard yeah, sleeve, yeah. you know. It yeah. is. It really takes me back hearing that first verse. Hearing you say that, I, I, I can I can smell the green carpet tiles in the room that were on the floor underneath the stereo player. Every you know that just right then I swear I could smell them. That's so weird. And so, why do you talk about harvest in this song? Is it because then you went and how did why harvest was harvest the first vinyl that you kind of found? Mm. 
So Harvest was not the very first. It was kind of Harvest and Dylan's times they were changing. Right. And they were the first time I, I realized that there's an artist behind this music. There's somebody that's writing songs that has a story to tell, has an artistic sensibility, plays the music, you know, has a, a band out of people that he instructs. Like there's, it, there's a whole concept here. And it was those two records that kind of, opened my eyes to that so harvest has always had a good uh, like a special place in my heart i guess Mm. the reason it became a song though is because i walked into a record store many like as normal i i left home and went on tour and i never i thought i'd lost that record that vinyl you know right and i thought well of course i'll buy harvest again one day but i know it so well i i just I didn't bother buying it for a long time. And then I walked into a record store and saw a reissue of the vinyl and thought, okay, I definitely need to have this again because it's been a long time. And but This, is Neil, this is Neil Young's Harvest for Neil anyone Young's that doesn't know. Harvest. Just in case anyone yes. – I just realised I didn't say that. Sorry, Neil Young's <laughs> Harvest. Just in <laughs> yeah. case anyone doesn't know. And that's fair enough. You that's don't, you know enough, what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it was so 50 bucks. I cut you off, right? shelf and I thought, 50 bucks? Jesus, like what's happened? Like in the time since I – because <laughs> I remember the was, vinyl I had it had had a had a dollar ninety nine written on it, and obviously this is. I know, mean, a cardboard sleeve that ago. expensive. I'll take it without the sleeve. <laughs> yeah. So I bought it, and then it, I I took it home and played it, and it got me thinking about uh, a song that, that right. was like an interesting bookend, and that's kind of the whole point of the song is that it's been a soundtrack to my whole life and I bought it again and now I've actually got it with the cardboard sleeve, you know. Um, Does it feel better with this? Does it sound better with the sleeve? I don't know. I don't know if it sounds better. I keep hearing, waiting for the same crackle uh, crackle and the same uh, scratches where it would jump before, but they're not there now. So it's kind of weird. It's a bit different experience to listen have you cut to. them in yourself yet just to, <laughs> just to get back to kind of no, that sound. Like, it sounded better bucks, <laughs> yeah touche yeah right you don't want to vandalize it i mean no, i've the, probably the got a copy is... I'll, I'll say for three bucks i mean <laughs> it's, it's awful no no like my copy not harvest sorry go on i interrupted you the, no that's all right the great story the thing that came out of this song was i when i finished writing it i sent it to my parents because i, I said check this out i came up with this song that you know is all steeped in when i found harvest you know underneath the record player and and my mum actually called me back and said well I've got that copy I kept it all these years like wow she said I thought you'd probably want it one day so she actually still had it so now I've got both so oh, that's side. brilliant that's the irony yeah which is great yeah it's cool yeah. Do you play them side by side and kind of mix them into one kind of like super nerdy master version? That would be super nerdy. No, I haven't done that. No, <laughs> no. Why would you? No, you're a normal person that doesn't have crazy impulses like some people we know. A couple of things I found out about this record after listening to the song and sort of knowing we were going to chat is I kind of went and just looked up Harvest. So it was released in 1972, and one thing I didn't know was that it had um, guest vocals or kind of session vocals or backing vocals by Crosby, Stills and Nash, Linda mm-hmm. Ronstadt, and James Taylor. I didn't yeah. know this. Yeah, I think a lot of them played with and sang with each other back then. Like yeah. They were all part of the gang, you know, the um, the folk gang, especially the that West Coast Laurel Canyon kind of scene. And I think a lot of them sang on each other's records and half of the time we weren't aware of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a scary folk gang, these guys turning up kind of with their acoustic guitars at your pub. You'll be sort of, ooh, give them, the, give them your seat. These guys will sing you a love song and make you cry in front of your tough mates, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I yeah. didn't know a lot about Harvest growing up. It wasn't kind of one of my ones. Um, 
you know, being a piano player yep. first, kind of like, you know, it's, yeah, the big, the big kind of rock and roller piano guys. Um, but it's funny, these experiences, it made me think a lot about these early records and kind of the romance of them and finding them. And it, what I wanted to ask you, I guess, is do you think that finding these things is the romance of the object, you know, tapes, vinyls, CDs, do we lose that a bit with the digital, do you think? Do you think people oh, are course. finding Harvest today in the same way and having that memory and sort of the song they're going to write is I found Harvest on Spotify when I was <laughs> 17 and, and when, when I go back and listen to it one day, I'll have to rebuy it, you know, on iTunes or something, you know? It doesn't have the same mystery, I'm going to say. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same romance, no. I think, from, yeah, you're probably right. The biggest, there's two things I miss the most about where, about, those days for me, you know, and without sounding, you know, too nostalgic or reminiscent, I think what I do miss is the act of playing music. Certainly a vinyl puts mm-hmm. you in the headspace to listen to it. So pulling it out, you know, putting it on the record player, there's a tactile thing, there's a, there's a physicality to playing music and then you put the needle on and you're ready to listen, whereas now it's just a flick of the thumb and it's not it's not quite the same physical act of getting prepared and listening to music, you know, yeah. and, and changing. You know how you're, you're flicking through the records while you're listening to one? What am yeah. I going to listen to next? You know, that flicking through and then pulling them out and then you start reading the liner notes because you, you think, oh, I haven't read this for a while. It's just it's such a beautiful pastime, I think, you know, and I, I do romantically remember all those those times and I still do that obviously I still have my vinyl collection I think the other thing that I I certainly don't well I know that my children don't experience that I did is that is that idea of you mentioned it before when you walk into a record store and you you see something and you see the cover and you think oh that looks interesting but then you you sit there having an internal dialogue like (laughs) can I afford to spend my whole week's pocket money on that when I don't know what it is mm. and I may not like it. And you would have to have this this moment of um, uncertainty and then you would either jump or not. And sometimes you jumped and you failed and you didn't like it or whatever, but or you played it so much that you wanted to like it because you paid your whole week's allowance on it. But then sometimes you found Supertramp, like you said, or something that just changed your life. And, and it, it was a it was a gamble and a risk and I loved that and I miss that because there is no gamble now anymore at all. So there's no risk. You can listen to anything you want before you ever invest in it and I, I do miss that a lot and I wish my kids had kind of had a chance to um, experience that, you know, because it's so great when you do find that cool thing. It's such a great feeling, you know. Well, it's such investing too. You're, you're saying to like, in the, you're right, in this moment it's like, and, and it's so funny, you're right, it's kind of like you're standing there and you're thinking, you know, my whole life depends on this choice if I get this record or not. Like, this is a big moment for me. Exactly. You know, it's if I if I get this record and I like it, then, you know, this is the song I'm going to be dreaming about Stacey for, for the next two weeks. Yep. Like, there better be a love song on this record or I'm, you know. But, and you're right, that leads into being more invested in it because you want to like it, you know. And it's yeah. the only record you've got, so you kind of listen to it 20 times. And you're right, maybe this is a bit fuddy-duddy, but you wonder if whether track eight is kind of found in the same way anymore, deep on an album in the in the way that it was back in the day because you would eventually listen to track eight, you know what I mean? But anyway, I digress. If we're talking about, you know, people that kind of, these early moments for us, you know, you finding Harvest when you were 13, 
the records like me finding Super Tramp and, and other keyboard guys like that, I think we inevitably have to sort of move to talking about Life Ain't Fine and this answer song to Paul Kelly's Life mm-hmm. Is Fine on your record, okay? So for anyone that doesn't know, an answer song is is like, um, uh, how, how would you explain it, Shane? What is an answer song? Well, there's a long history of answer songs, more probably more so in country music than mm-hmm. any others, but there's still a lot of mainstream pop examples. And it, the answer song is basically someone that would release a song that about somebody else, usually, and then that other that somebody else would then release an answer song a year later or so, a song in to direct them. response. You know, and there's a lot of examples of that in country music where someone, you know, in lost lost love situations where someone would sing about the other person and then they would reply with another song. You know. A, about them and and it'd be like um so it's kind of like paul kelly's life is fine and then you write life ain't fine and then <laughs> and then then i write life is shit that would kind of be, <laughs> that's kind of like this is you know or maybe or maybe i pass it back the other way and i go life is beautiful and then i just blow everyone's minds you know it's like wow where did that yeah. come from well i had this idea that i would do this answer song to life life is fine yeah, and I wanted to make direct reference to him. So I mean, that's the catch line in the song is that no matter what he says, life ain't fine. And but then I thought I'd go a step further and actually use all of his own song titles to to tell the story. So it's pretty much the story of life ain't fine is told purely with Paul Kelly's song titles. It's kind and... of like the king of the answer song. You can't best <laughs> you can't best someone better than writing an answer song with all of their own words. You know, what I mean? yeah, it's no. kind of it's well. I thought I might have gone too far. So when I finished it, he was the first person I played. I sent it to just to make sure that I hadn't overstepped the mark. <laughs> yeah, and what did he say? Well, he he said exactly. He said, "Oh no, I love an answering song." And then he listed off all of his favorites, which was a bunch that I'd never even heard. And he said, "I love an answering song." You know that? So he said, "Run with it. Go with it." So I did, yeah. <laughs> was the first time you guys worked together on Whistling Cannonballs on your album Bad Machines, was that the first time or had you worked together previously? Because he's a bit of an idol of yours, right? You've said that you're sort of publicly and stuff. Yeah, he was. I mean, the first time I played in public in front of an audience as a 14-year-old, I played Paul Kelly song. So, yeah. Wow. It's, it's, he was he – was, I, I remember hearing him on the radio, you know, on commercial radio in Australia growing up as a kid back when they used to play, you know, songwriters and – Kind of thing. So I, he was definitely an idol of mine. I, I hadn't worked with him uh, on a track, on a recording as such before that, but we had been on tour together, uh, played some shows in Australia, but we'd also played a, a handful of shows together in the US. On a, We were both actually touring at the same time in the US and it was four times that our tours kind of crossed paths in the same city. So those four times we played a show together but they weren't connected in any way it'd be like one show in portland oregon it's like i'll see you i'll see you in three weeks in you know la or wherever it would be so we just kind of go our separate ways and then meet up and so there was four shows i think we did over there and um shane are you saying that every fucking city has written about you <laughs> no, not at all. I think he'd actually written it before. Oh, maybe. Uh, okay, maybe all right. Interesting. I'm going to have to get my journalist hat on here and sort of dig a bit deeper in this one. I can't remember. This was probably about 2004, maybe. I can't remember. Yeah. All right. The so dates don't like line that. up. I'll admit defeat. Yeah, but it was it was great. It was just him touring with Dan and the two of them were on stage every night and Dan Muskin and 
it would have been the nothing but a dream tour. That's what he was doing. So yeah, um, but it was yeah. He's always been an idol of mine. But and so that was the first time we worked together when I was listening Cannibals. I I sent it to him and in the hope that he might want to sing on it. And I think it, it was it's still like one of the highlights of my whole creative life is hearing Paul Kelly sing a line of lyric that you wrote. You know, yeah. it's crazy. Crazy. I still watch the video for that song, and and I can see in my eyes just the 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 sheer what the fuck is going on here? Is this really happening? I'm so glad you're putting it like that because this is how I put it too. It's kind of like it's it's that 13 year old that finds that record, and it's kind of like these songs that fill us in two ways. It's like the musician, and then there's the songs touch us in life. True. And, yeah. and what I call it. Chain is I call it the be cool guy or girl, right? It's the kind of the person you've got to when you call them up, you have to remind yourself just to be cool, just be cool. And I'm, this is like for me, it's like you know if I got the chance to chat to Billy Joel or meet Billy Joel, it'd be a severe, just be cool. Yeah, just, yeah. just be cool. You I'd be the I mean? same with Billy Joel. Yeah, I think this is how Matt Fell and I, who I mentioned before, my best yeah. mate. I think this is how we bonded is because of our our unbridled love for billy joel and when we when we make records together we get so far off track when we when we feel like it's gone and it's got a bit of a billy joel vibe we just kind of get so far off track chasing that (laughs) we know we know the whole time that we're going to have to pair it back at some point but we just we just get so chuffed you know (laughs) about about something sounding remotely like billy joel that's brilliant Um, yeah we love him i love him and um I, I totally feel you on that. All right, well, let's take another quick break and let's come back and talk more about this Ripper album, but also let's talk about um, what you're calling your peak cynicism that seems to be turning into you writing some pretty gushy love songs. And for a guy that hates to use the word love, I'm really curious to ask what this is all about. We'll be right back. All right, so you say love a lot on this album, Shane, all right? Yeah, in the, in the opening lyric of Love Ain't Fine, you say, I could never write a love song. So what has changed? Are you now a hopeless romantic? Are you about to send me flowers? Because I can give you my address. I, I love flowers. I could send you flowers. I love getting flowers. I'm, I'm a real flower man. Way to turn that on me. That's right. Why aren't I sending you flowers? You've come on the show. <laughs> That's a really good point. But where did this I come from? So this, this peak cynicism. Yeah, right. Well, peak cynicism, That's I do feel like I'm there. I, I'm at my grumpy old man stage before I'm fully old. Um, peak cynic, you know, um, I feel like that. I feel like I struggle with so many things that we've all become, you know, mm. and um, or where we're heading and what we're becoming. And extra because of being a parent, I guess I'm thinking further down the road and how it or what it means for my kids I guess when they're grown up and trying to live lives and I think yeah there's a there's probably a bunch of reasons that I'm reaching peak cynic but I've always been the cynic in 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 this in a group you know I've always been the the pessimist the glass is half empty guy I think it's just been my nature so I was bound to become you know, I'll reach my peak cynic before I, um, you know, before I got old. But I think the love thing has come, which is so weird. It's almost like um, inversely proportional. It's grown um, 
no, sorry, it's almost proportional. It's almost grown at the same rate as my cynicism. That right. I'm finding now that the importance of friendships and relationships uh, is, well, I mean, I'm, I'm valuing the importance of them more. I'm, I'm realising mm. the importance of fostering them or working on them, not taking them for granted or letting them just bubble along, but actually, you know, working on them and investing in them. And I think the, this has all become a thing. This has all happened as a fallout of the fact that we lost Glenn Hanna in 2019, who was one of our very close friends. He was in my band for 17 years, He's, you know, um, and we lost him to suicide. And he was one of our very close, you know, part of our gang, our group. So yeah. that rocked us a lot. And I think one one thing that's happened in the aftermath of that is the recognizing the importance of our close friendships and realizing that we don't always, even though we're close and we might talk every day and work every day, you don't always know everything that's going on for someone. And, and I think that's the thread in this record about the love aspect. The love aspect in this record, I think is more directly related to that or to him. This is the first album I've had to make without him being around ever, you know, it's a, and everyone else who made this record with me, Matt and Josh Schubert, who plays drums for me, it's the four of us that normally make records together. You know, so we felt the it was magnified. The fact that he wasn't there was so obvious to us through the making of this record because normally it would be the four of us, you know, and it was just yeah. the three. So there is definitely more of a a growing sense of... Yeah, maybe, I mean, love's an easy word to en- encompass it all, but um, friendship, um, support, um, openness, all these different things that we're kind of becoming aware of since losing Glenn and we're all trying harder to kind of, you know, keep those things in the forefront. And I, I think that thankfully what Glenn has given me <laughs> is that he's given me the desire to do that while my cynicism is reaching its peak in so many other ways i've been given this you know imperative that i need to um to value these the good things in my life you know and and it keeps me balanced it keeps me Mm. um it's what keeps me stable now i think and um it's a yin and yang kind of bringing those two things to kind of some sort of equality or balance i guess yeah yeah i think that's what and pretty much i find my mental state has always been a, a matter of balance, you know, in my whole life and it's, or everything has been. If I do, if I go f- too far down one road, um, I get off kilter. Like if I tour for too long and I don't come home or if I'm at home too long and I'm not on tour, if I, everything has to be about balance for me, I think, um, just to keep moving forward. And that's certainly what seems to have risen out of this, a uh, whole last couple of years is is a reminder of the importance of the balance in my life, especially when I, yeah, I feel like the uh, the cynical side of me takes over sometimes. It's really great to be reminded of um, the other side. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's sad that it took something like losing somebody from your close circle to remind us of that, but it's um, it's good to be reminded before we lose someone else. You know? Yeah, it's it, it's kind of 
it's interesting for me to hear you talk about this kind of the both the side the the side of the 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 cynic and then kind of the the lover and the hater. That's not a good way of saying it, but you know, there's sort of those two sides, you know, it's definitely mm-hmm. not hate, but you know what I'm saying? Because in in thinking about like there's two songs that are coming to mind now, right? One is from the past and one is on this record and one is The Quiet Life, mm-hmm. you know, from Wreck and Ruin in twenty twelve, which I reckon is one of is one of the best, if not best, duets about love and music of all time. Like I mean, you know, we've got these strange <laughs> classifications we do as yeah. as writers, right? But to me, you know, there's a very there's very few specific songs that like a musician can have when they fall in love with another musician or another one from kind of show business, right? And for me, this is one of those songs where you can be like, see, we we do two lives. We can do yeah. two lives and we can do them together. You know what I mean? I think it's a beautiful song and it's a song that's meant oh, a lot you. to me personally. It's it's a yeah, it's oh, but it's like great. walking that line, you know what I mean, between that balance of the those two things. If you don't know Quiet Life folks, it, there's gonna be a link to it in in the Spotify thing. I could just sing it for you now, but I won't because that's not why you're here. This podcast, you're here to hear, hear from Shane, but but it's a song that's. I mean, the opening lyrics: "We could be the talk of the town tonight. Carry home your shoes in the morning light. We could stay here a while, wrapped up in the quiet life." And yeah. um, I remember yeah. writing that. I remember, like, I remember writing most songs, and I remember that that was. I wrote that on the very first day of of writing for Wreck and Ruin. Ironically, because the song is about me saying, well, I really like on this balcony. We were sitting at the back of a back porch on a little cabin in the Hunter Valley and I was watching a wombat waddle across the field and I was playing a banjo. I had a glass of whiskey. It was like 11 a.m. You're allowed to drink whiskey before lunchtime if you're playing banjo. That's kind of the rule that we had. It's the only way of picking up a banjo. Exactly. You can't, you, can't, you need to grease the wheels. Yeah. And I, I started writing this song about, Oh, do I want to write a whole record? You know, inside <laughs> writing something else. And I was like, do I want to keep doing this and go back on the road? Like I could just sit here and play banjo and write songs and maybe that would be just as fun. And that's kind of where the, the song idea was. Would that be as would that be as fulfilling for me if I just sat on this veranda and had a quiet life and played banjo forever? And obviously it wasn't enough because it went on a record and then we went on tour. But it was just that fleeting thought of and one best country album, and it was a it was a ripper. But but I mean, but all but all but all set aside, it's really nice to you know, yeah, it's it's such a beautiful song. Thanks. And the other yeah, one that I, I really was, love the, it too. The other one I was thinking about is, of course, how to write a song on this record, which uh, yeah. I think is another one that, like you know, a lot of people from our business go, "Yep, they're hearing you go through these things." So for anyone that doesn't know, before I let you go, can you just give us a quick rundown of kind of of what how to write a song is about? On, on, on your new record well it's it's kind of cheeky as well it's 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 my cynic coming out again um it's in some it's equal parts my take on the industry in you know in some ways at the moment it's also a lot of things that have actually happened to me or that I've witnessed and how I just how unbelievable some of the music industry can be and and how it's evolving into something new now i guess mm-hmm. and how artists have to be have to sell themselves so shamelessly now it's just the only way people can get heard above the, the sheer volume of noise around and um and the industry is really kind of pairing back to the artists now there's it's not so much you know the label in the middle and all of that and and artists have really got to get out there and and 
show their wares and kind of um, the the artist cool has kind of gone. You know, yeah. it's like I never wanted to know what Neil Young ate for breakfast. I don't want to know what his songs are about. I don't want to see him, you know, twerking in the kitchen. Yeah. Definitely, you know, I want I want my idols to have some mystery about them, and and that's gone in a lot of ways. And I think it's just a commentary on that. Um, how to write a song is a commentary on. Well, some yeah, of the lyrics. Let me give people a quick, a quick sort of background. So, bleed your heart out on a page. Um, I'm just picking random points in the song. Spend your life waiting backstage, fighting with royalties. Plan on giving, you know, giving it away for free. Hopefully, the song will grow some wings and fly. And then you play that song to the day you die. I think that's just a cracker. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, that's what you want. You this want is great, the song but do you know do Sweet well? Caroline, Neil Diamond? It's like, yeah. yes, I do. Here we go. Ba -da -da, ba -da -da -da, ba -da -da. You know, that's true. Yeah. You know, everyone wants a hit song, but then it becomes, you know, a thorn in their side in a lot of ways. And that's just part of the, the business. The, it's the part of the business. Yeah. Well, it's finding that balance between that cynicism and love that has really brought a record that we're loving playing at our house. Thank you for oh, thank making you. music in, you know, a pretty crazy time and making it work. And I can't wait to go rent a Airbnb for a night and see what song I come up with, <laughs> send it to you and say, Do you know, it. Is, Do it, is it, is it, is it worthy to be a part of the Airbnb club? <laughs> the Airbnb club. That's a great idea. There you go. Well, Shane, That's thank you so really... much for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, thanks for your great. time. I know you're busy. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life, and their careers. Created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit ofm.com.